This is Archive Atlanta, episode 123, Zoo Atlanta. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week, we're going to the zoo. Well, figuratively, at least. Zoo Atlanta is part of the lived experience of so many Atlantans, but I'm not sure that everyone knows exactly how it got started. From a small collection of local animals when the park was formed, to a defunct circus in 1889, to a Candler boost in 1935, we're going to talk about all of that, all of the famous animals, the controversies, the decline, and then the later reemergence. The idea of a zoo dates all the way back to ancient civilizations, although they were then known as menageries. Excavations in Egypt date back to 3500 BCE, and they show evidence that pharaohs kept small zoos, so did the 11th century Assyrians and the 4th century Greeks. Of course, most of us are familiar with what the Romans did to animals, which was use them mainly in arenas against each other or other gladiators. And this wasn't solely a European thing. There was also findings of Aztec emperors that kept quote-unquote houses of animals. In all of history, I think you can safely assume that for those in charge, typically men, it was a symbol of power to have a collection of animals that came from all over the globe. So in one fell swoop, you get to show off your reach, your wealth, your power, and your supposed dominance over the natural world. The modern zoo idea emerged during the Age of Enlightenment a time marked by science, reason, and logic, these ideals of society extended to create zoology. People began to study animals for scientific reasons, and they also wanted to research animal behavior and animal anatomy. So in order to do these things, you have to keep animals confined in places that are as close to their natural habitat as possible or in their natural habitat. The first modern zoo opened in 1793 in Paris, France, and it was a collection of the menageries of French aristocrats, including the king and queen, that were confiscated during the French Revolution and then relocated to a public park. Fun fact, this is still a zoo in Paris today, and that story is incredible. In America, the first zoo opened in 1874 in Philadelphia, and then the following year, two opened, one in Chicago and one in Cincinnati. So what about Atlanta? Before we talk about the zoo, we need to get a refresher on Grand Park, where Zoo Atlanta is today. Lemuel P. Grant donated 100 acres to the city in 1883 for park space, and when he did, the city formed its first park commission and appointed Sidney Root as commissioner. About seven years after Grant's original donation, the city purchased an additional 44 acres, and that makes up about what you see today. By 1900, it had hosted a million visits, so it was really popular. They had Lake Abana, which was a six-acre lake fed by natural springs, and Little Switzerland, which was an amusement park. Attracting Atlantans to visit Grand Park was the goal from day one, and so I read that even in these earliest years, there was a small collection of local animals that functioned as like a little amusement menagerie of sorts. But in 1889, things would change. In that year, the Hall and Bingley Circus was passing through Atlanta via train and got metaphorically stuck. There was a lot of internal drama between the two owners, Hall and Stevens. There was finances that fell apart. There was a guy named Mr. Hitchcock who put a claim on the train cars for past due wages. And then all of a sudden, about half of the hundred or so employees started filing laborers' liens for unpaid wages. The circus was placed in receivership and appointed a receiver, Mr. J. Frank Lester. 
Lester immediately sends bailiff and police out to guard the property. So the property is considered one railroad sleeping car, two boxcars, two flat cars, wagons, horses, tents, and other circus paraphernalia. But there was also animals. There was a gazelle, two monkeys, a raccoon, two wildcats, Mexican hog, a hyena, two lionesses, jaguar, fawns, silverback, black bear, elk, three camels, a dromedary, two boxes of snakes, and 12 horses. There was also something that was called an educated pig. I'm assuming a pig that did tricks. But that and the band instruments and the trapezes were considered private property. So these were not foreclosed on and considered part of the tax liens. And of course, a little chaos ensues because what are we supposed to do with all these animals? They start feeding and caring for them until the auction can be set up. And then the out-of-work circus performers are given permission to just set up at random intersections throughout downtown Atlanta to perform for crowds to make enough money until they can settle their claims. Lester ends up bringing the animals out to a farm. Sometimes it's listed as Jones and Ressner. Sometimes it's Rosser and Jones. But basically, they were stables a little further out of town where they can be fed less expensively and then just get the whole thing out of the way of the active trains. The auction is set for March 28, 1889, and a man named A.E. Eager starts the bid at $3,700. Forrest Adair moved it up to $38. They bid against each other until it reaches about $4,485, which, by the way, would be about $131,000 today. And Adair wins. He then reveals that he has been bidding as an agent for George Gress and Thomas James. This duo take their winnings. They sell the horses, camels, wagons, and tents for like $2,200. So essentially, they buy it for half the cost. And then they split the rest, the animals and the rail cars between them. James needed the cars for his business, and Gress had a plan for the animals. George Valentine Gress was born in Carbondale, Pennsylvania in 1846. He moved to Chattanooga after the Civil War, where he trained in sawmilling and lumber. He got married. He had two kids. He moved to Alabama. His first wife died, then he married Barry Nelson, and they had a daughter and moved to Georgia, eventually then to Atlanta. Their home was on Peachtree Street between Baker and Ivy, and he operated the Gress Lumber Company. If the house on Peachtree didn't give it away, the Gresses had money and lots of it. So his plan was to donate these circus animals to the city of Atlanta as a quote-unquote permanent menagerie, the nucleus of a zoological garden. Gress met with the park commissioner, and his only stipulations are that the animals be cared for, and then if one of them dies, the city replaces it. Sydney Root is on board. While there's a lot to think about, like the cost of a zookeeper, general maintenance, Atlantans are thrilled about this, and they are talking about Gress like he is a god. I mean, you have to read these articles, they're hilarious. It's like, you know, L.P. Grant gave us the park, and Gress gave us the zoo. They're the greatest. On March 31st, we formally accepted the gift of the animals, and the Gress Zoological Park was born. Architect G.L. Norman went with the Park Commission guys to visit Grant Park, and he donates his time and plans for the first zoo building, which he believed should lie between Lake Abana and the Dummy Line, which was a streetcar line. Gress agreed to donate the lumber for free from one of his plants in Tennessee. But even with his donated time and material, there are still a lot of unanswered financial questions. And a lot of it was feeding these animals, which I can't remember the estimate, but it was a big cost. So Edward Peters, streetcar owner, son of Richard Peters, offered to cover the cost of feeding these animals if they moved the zoo to the Ponce de Leon Springs or Piedmont Park. And 
the city said no, but it's funny, immediately all the other streetcar operators jumped in with their own offers because, let's be honest, having a zoo on your streetcar line was a guaranteed profit booster. The Metropolitan Street Railway, which went out to Grant Park, finally did make some generous offers, and the animals were moved to the park on April 5th. An estimated 12,000 people first came out to see the animals housed in a temporary wooden structure. In November, the cornerstone of the new zoo building was laid, located to the left of Savannah Avenue overlooking the lake. J.W. Havens, who was the Hall and Bigley zookeeper, became the zookeeper at the Grest Zoo. During the first year, private citizens donated over 60 animals, and while popular, the real draw would have been an elephant, which the zoo did not have. In 1890, the Constitution started a Name the Elephant fundraising drive, so for five cents, you were allowed to suggest the name of our future pachyderm, and the winner was Cleo. They even had an elephant show at Piedmont Park to raise funds, so basically when they did buy Cleo, they debuted her at the Midsummer Festival at Piedmont Park, and they led her home to the zoo in Grant Park via parade. So a huge parade from Piedmont Park to Grant Park. In 1893, George Gress purchased the Cyclorama, and he planned to move it to a permanent exhibition in Grant Park. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but he felt strongly about the zoo being free, that every child who wanted to visit it should not be barred because lack of funds. So his instructions are the profits from the admission to the cyclorama will be used to upkeep the zoo. Now, sadly, funding would be an issue for the zoo for a century to come, but we'll get there. Gress continued to be actively involved, unsurprisingly being named president of the park commission, but also traveling the country to purchase more animals. In 1896, he bought two snow leopards in New York that were sent by ocean steamer to Savannah and then train to Atlanta. By 1897, the drama began. Gress is not re-elected to the board, and other non-original Park Commission members begin to talk about selling the animals to upgrade the actual Grand Park land. And there is public outrage. There's also lots of rumors. So it didn't help at the time that Gress is traveling. He's kind of semi-permanently living in New York. He was also going through a divorce that got called off. And there's a lot of rumors, you know, 19th century gossip. And so we see this beginning of this weird dynamic where the public in Atlanta loves the zoo. They freak out if anybody talks about selling it. And city leaders are excited about the zoo, but the government never properly funds its operation. In 1902, Cleo the elephant died, and Gress vowed to find a new elephant. He chips in $500, and he goes to the city like, hey, what happened to the Cyclorama money? And so they're like, oh, oh yeah, that, that went to the general park fund. Like, don't worry about it. So there was not enough money to purchase an elephant. Regular Atlantans raised funds as well, and soon Maud the elephant joined the family, named for Park Commissioner W.T. Moyer's wife. I don't know how I would feel about having an elephant named after me, but hey, that's just me. In 1904, the zoo was in rough shape, and many animals had since died without being replaced. Preston Arkwright, which was the first president of Georgia Power, donated $5,000 to buy new animals. I think it was $1,000 up front and then like $1,000 for the next four years. The city ends up chipping in $2,000, and the Yarab Temple actually donated two camels with the stipulation that they can use them during parades. So in the next three years, they added a zebra, lion, pumas, leopards, porcupines, and emu, uh, toucans, swans, ducks, and assorted breeds of monkeys. And the next big donation would not come until the 1930s. 
Asa Candler Jr., informally Buddy Candler, was a son of Coca-Cola founder and had become pretty wealthy in his own right after the Candler siblings had sold their shares of Coke. With that money, he brought an old dairy farm on Briarcliff Road, and he turned it into his Briarcliff estate. So for more information on that, I did episode 95 about the Candler Mansions, but I always encourage everyone to visit Sarah's amazing research website, acesbriarcliff.com. So what does an eccentric millionaire do with his money in 1932? He starts a menagerie. 30 animals arrived via train to Emory, and they were taken to Briarcliff, and they included two elephants, a Himalayan goat, two leopards, two lions, two mountain lions, two llamas, two chimps, two bears, one camel, one zebra, and a flock of monkeys. The elephants' names were Coca and Cola, of course, and this new menagerie was called the Asa G. Candler Jr. Zoological Gardens, or colloquially Briarcliff Zoo. It opened to the public in 1932, and just months later, Druid Hill neighbors just freak out. They are complaining about smells, noises, there were stories that certain animals had escaped, and they demand the zoo to be removed. By the following year, he had at least two pending lawsuits from neighbors, totaling about $50,000. And around the same time, Ma the Elephant died when visitors to the zoo fed her some raw sugar cane, and so he donated Coca to the Gress Zoo. And one of the saddest stories I read was that Coca would keep up the residents of Grand Park all night, crying because she missed Cola so much. By 1935, Candler expressed his desire to donate his menagerie to the city. So at this point, he had five elephants, six ponies, one camel, uh, one black leopard, a hyena, two pumas, a leopard, um, a lynx, a baboon, eight lions, five lion cubs, 20 monkeys, two ostriches, two zebras, um, buffalo, bears, polar bears, llamas, like there's too many to name, alligators, and I think a hundred rare birds. Now his only condition here is that every single animal is properly housed, and the issue with that, and the mayor key at the time, said it was going to cost about $15,000 to build an appropriate shelter for everybody. So to fund this, he starts a dime campaign. The idea is that if 150 thousand Atlantans send in just one dime, which today equates to like sending in a dollar. Boom, all set. And while this started out strong, it didn't quite end the way they hoped. Dimes began rolling in from police departments, fire stations, Haverty's furniture employees, um, schools, banks, stores, everybody had a jar. And then by February, though, they had only collected about $2,700. There was a zoo fund ball that helped a little bit more, but what ended up happening was the city had to apply for a Federal Emergency Relief Administration grant, which was $20,000. The issue is it was for labor only. So they couldn't build the new structure they needed. They could only renovate the existing inadequate structure. The 1940s were a tough time for the zoo. The cageless, natural habitat model was becoming popular across the U.S., and Atlanta was still using small, confined, hard-surface pens and cages. There were discussions about selling the zoo, but again, public outrage over the idea kept it open. In 1949, Parks Department Director George Simmons campaigns for more money. The city had just appropriated $10,000 um, for the animals, but the Humane Society called the zoo, quote, pitifully inadequate excuse for the real thing, end quote. Atlanta ends up stepping up and earmarking some of the funds from the profits of selling Lakewood Park. In 1950, Coca died from a common malady of elephants confined to hard surfaces. 
she was buried on the prison farm next to Maud. Small side note here, if you're current with Atlanta News, um, this is the green space that was the former prison farm that has been sold and planned to be developed into a police training facility. No one in this news has seemed to brought up the fact that there are at least two elephants buried there and a gorilla, which I'll talk about soon, and almost every other large animal that died in the zoo is out there. After Coca's death, the zoo gets two new elephants and again allows the public to submit donations for names. The winners are Coca 2 and Pennies, and that is a reference to Pennies for Pachyderms campaign. After a push from Mayor Hartsfield, the Georgia state legislator authorized the city to levy a tax to fund the zoo, and then the new elephant house was completed in 1951. Even though the animal-centered outdoor pen model, like I said, was becoming more popular, Atlanta did not build or remodel in that way. In 1956, another circus is stranded in Winder, Georgia, and the zoo gains an elephant named Lulabelle, a camel, a water buffalo, a cow, and a llama. On June 19, 1959, Grass Zoo got its first lowland gorilla named Willie B. after Mayor William B. Hartsfield. The mayor was a huge fan. Apparently, he even wrote in the gorilla's name to run for Congress in 1960, and he got like almost 600 votes between Fulton and DeKalb counties combined. Sadly, a year later, Willie B. died from an infection and was buried with Cleo and Maud on the prison farm. A Kansas City veterinarian gifted Atlanta a new gorilla who was also named Willie B. In 1963, Lake Abana was drained and the children's zoo and miniature train opened where the water once was. Five years later, the zoo hired its first professional director, John Roth. He was the one who lobbied to change the name from the Gress Zoological Garden to Atlanta Zoo. That didn't happen right away. But he also brought in rare animals to get more people interested. And he also brought in the idea of um, breeding the animals that were in captivity. By the late 1960s, the captivity model is changing. And he estimates that we need over a half a million dollars in work. And to pay for it, Roth suggested charging 25 cents admission. Remember, it had been free at the insistence of George Grass since 1889. And so the admission thing actually would not pass until 1971. In 1970, Dr. Jeffrey Bourne, who was head of the Yerkes Primate Research Center, I think that was at Emory, um, Dr. Dwayne Rumbaugh and local lawyer Richard Reynolds formed the Zoological Society of Atlanta, which was a nonprofit dedicated to improving the zoo. Later on, they added Deborah Eason, who was publisher of Creative Loafing, and Maxine Rock. So 1971-72, charging admission was finally approved. So it was 50 cents for adults. Children uh, 12 to 16 were 25 cents. Younger than 12 were free, but they did not allow unaccompanied minors, which apparently was an issue. So apparently parents would just leave their kids there at the zoo all day long in the summer, almost like it was a day camp or something. And so they stopped that practice and they also discontinued using prison labor, which was heavily used by the zoo. 1984 was the zoo's lowest point, described in articles and papers as quote-unquote hitting bottom. Their director resigned, there was no funding, Um, several animals had died, including Twinkle the elephant from a mysterious circumstance. The zoo was suspended from the American Association of Zoological Parks and Aquariums, and it was listed as being in the bottom 10 of all zoos in America. It was Mayor Andrew Young that assembled like a crisis team of sorts. He appointed an interim director and the ship began to turn. 
The earlier nonprofit I mentioned became the Atlanta Fulton County Zoo, Inc., and in that same year, they decided to change the name to Zoo Atlanta. Listeners that grew up in Atlanta maybe know some of these later stories. Um, definitely remember the gorillas like Willie B and Ivan. Um, there was pandas born in 1999. They were an international sensation. And today we have more than half a million people that visit the zoo every year. So there you have it, the story of Zoo Atlanta. Its start, its famous animals, its ups and downs, and its current success. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.